page 455, 1 Samuel chapter 24, starting from verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look out for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, Hey, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the King! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As Daryl said, if you could leave your Bibles open there because we're going to look at the three chapters, 24, 25, 26. Uh, But before we do that, let me pray. Gracious God, help us to be attentive to you. We pray that your spirit might be moving among us and in us, uh, opening our hearts and our minds so that we might see you more clearly this morning. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. When I get into tricky situations, I'm often tempted to take a shortcut. I'll opt for what is the most convenient, easiest way for me. Now, my family knows that I'm the king of traffic shortcuts. If there's a traffic jam, I will create a shortcut. I will know in my mind how it's all going to unfold, so I don't need to refer to Google Maps. I know where we're going to go. I'm confident in my knowledge and my ability to avoid every hindrance. 
every inconvenience. Needless to say, there was one... Needless to say, there were odd occasions when my shortcuts have shown just how foolish I am. For those of you who can't relate to my fetish for shortcuts... Perhaps you can identify with me regarding the fast-forward button on the remote. Here's a question for you. When watching a recorded TV program, hands up if you fast-forward through the ads. Of course we do. Of course. We want to get to the good bits. Imagine if you could fast-forward through some aspects of your life. Imagine if you could push a fast-forward button through the hardship just to the good bits. I wonder what bits you would have fast-forwarded through already. David finds himself in the desert. He's in the wilderness areas of Israel. In these three chapters, he faces three temptations three temptations in the wilderness sound familiar in each of these temptations David has the option of hitting the fast forward button opportunities arise and place before him so that he can take a shortcut so let's look at each of these temptations in turn and see if we can discern something anything that might help us as we deal with temptation temptation one in the cave david is hiding in one of the many caves that are around in the engedi desert saul conveniently and unwittingly chooses the very one that david is hiding in to go and relieve himself as saul goes about his business david's men whisper to him in verse 4, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. God is giving him an opportunity to put an end to his running and hiding, put an end to his hand-to-mouth experience in the desert. Here is an opportunity to claim what is rightfully his. The kingdom. David stealthily creeps up behind Saul, dagger in hand, and cuts off a bit of his robe. Cuts off a bit of his robe. And yet he is conscience stricken. He is conscience stricken in verse 5. And that's not because he's having second thoughts about killing Saul. But because even cutting his robe is a step too far in relation to the Lord's anointed. David follows Saul out of the cave. In respect, he bows down before him. In humility, he he calls to him. He acknowledges that God has been in these events. And he acknowledges his godly motives in sparing his life. Saul responds 
with what appears to be heartfelt tears. He weeps. He also acknowledges that God is responsible here. He, he prays to God that David would be rewarded for his kindness. And then Saul declares that David is truly the anointed one. This is the first time we see this in 1 Samuel. So in verse 20, if you can look with me. I know that you will surely be king and that the king of Israel, the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. David promises again not to harm Saul and Saul turns home. David chooses the long, convoluted, seemingly foolish way to get to the throne. He chooses the way of faith. Humility, mercy. He chooses God's way. In chapter 25, we see temptation at Carmel. Here we're introduced to a married couple. Nabal is described as very wealthy. He's very wealthy. He's also surly and mean. And by the way, his name means fool. And we'll see that his parents must have had known something when they gave him that name. His wife Abigail is said to be intelligent and beautiful. David and his men had set up camp near where Nabal's shepherds are looking after his thousand goats and three thousand sheep. Going to sleep with the bleeding of sheep in his ears must have reminded that must have reminded David that even in the wilderness, God was his shepherd. David and his men strike up a good relationship with Nabal's men. And when cheering time comes around, a time of festivity, David sends some of his men off with a message, a request of Nabal. They explain that David has shown nothing but kindness to his men, that David hasn't mistreated them or stolen from them. And so in verse 8, we, the end of verse 8, we see this request. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Nabal dismisses them without a crumb. He's got plenty, but they're getting nothing. In response, David's when David's men comes back, he tells his 400 men to strap on their swords. And David straps on his sword. David is going to take what is not rightfully his. There will be innocent blood that will be shed. He will take revenge. Revenge always escalates. Revenge always always increases wrong. By God's sovereign grace, one of Nabal's servants, aware of what's going on, goes and tells Abigail. Quickly, Abigail organizes a generous gift. It does say quickly here, but I don't know how you can do this quickly. Uh, Have a look at verse 18. 
This is the gift she prepares. 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, 27 kilos of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs. She must be some cook. They load up donkeys and they go towards David. As she approaches David, she bows down. She falls at his feet, refers to herself as your servant and refers to him as my Lord. She is now displaying the humility and the respect that David had shown to Saul. Then she speaks wisely. In effect, she says, God will make you king. So don't become king with innocent blood on your hands. Let God do this and trust yourself to God. He is the one who judges justly. Now, David at this point can easily just take all this gift and then take all the rest. He's the Lord's anointed after all. He can skip a life of suffering. He can take justice into his own hands. But that's not God's way. If David doesn't learn mercy, what kind of king will he become? David comes to his senses and acknowledges Abigail's wisdom and he praises God. David is rescued. He's delivered from temptation and foolishness. When Abigail returns home, Nabal is having a banquet fit for a king. Nabal acts like a king, but he's a fool. He's not generous. He remains holding on tightly to the one thing he loves, his wealth. Next morning, Abigail tells him of what has happened. And in verses 37 and 38, we read these words. Verse 37. His heart failed him. And he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. I wonder when Jesus was talking about the rich fool in the parables that he had Nabal in mind. Abigail is taken by David to be his wife. But David still takes something that's not rightfully his. Temptation three in Saul's camp. Now at first glance, chapter 26 looks like a rerun of chapter 24. Again, Saul is chasing David with the idea of killing him. His previous words and tears were meaningless. Again, David is in a position to kill him. He's standing over him in Saul's camp while Saul sleeps. The difference here is that this time one of David's men says 
He will do Saul in. He will take Saul's spear and drive it into the ground through him. David wouldn't have the blood on his hands. This could be so easy, so convenient to just give the nod. But he declines. Again afterwards Saul expresses a measure of remorse. And Saul even admits that he acted like a fool. He is a fool like Nabal. Saul is Nabal, Nabal is Saul. David chooses not to be. David knows God's way is righteousness and faithfulness. He says so in verse 23. And so he entrusts himself to God, the sovereign God who judges justly. And so we see in verse 24 these words. May the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. David places his whole life into God's hands. Again, David opts for God's way, which often appears long, convoluted and foolish. David is tested and he passes, but he's not perfect. He needed to be delivered from temptation and foolishness. This story points us to Jesus, doesn't it? A Jesus who also was tested in the wilderness. Tested three times with temptations to take a shortcut to God's kingdom. To bypass suffering and pain. To take the throne which is rightfully his. David's temptation was to become a fool and grasp for the kingdom through bloodshed. Jesus too resists this temptation. Oh yes, he comes to the kingdom through bloodshed, but it's the blood of his own that is shed. Jesus faces the temptations again in Gethsemane. And again, there's spilling of blood as his sweat pours down. Again, he chooses God's way for us. He chooses to go to the cross for us. You see, had Jesus chosen a shortcut or to fast forward and avoid the suffering, suffering in our place, our present and our future will be hopeless. Praise God that we have a king who has suffered not just like us and so can identify with us, but who has suffered ultimately for us. Our temptations are David's and Jesus' temptations. The temptation to choose foolishness over God's wisdom. To choose our ways and our timing over God's ways and God's timing. To take matters in our own hands so that we can establish justice. 
instead of entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. Now, not all temptations are of this grand scale. You know you face little temptations every day. Think about the last time you decided not to really listen to your friend and politely fob them off. When was the last time you avoided doing the right thing because it was inconvenient? When have we ignored someone made in the image of God just like us because it would require effort it would require humility mercy and love that we're not prepared to give temptation to sin is a profound a profound issue for all Christians on a daily basis yet we probably don't give enough thought to how it works the Bible speaks about three sources of temptation in biblical order the devil the flesh the world each one is distinct and subtle in Genesis 3 in the garden the serpent never actually says go on eat it eat it his approach is simple to make sin seem sensible he creates what we might call a plausibility structure for doing wrong. He twists God's word. He makes God out to be harsh. He casts doubt on God's goodness. He casts doubt on God's love. Does God really love you? Does he really love you? He implies there is an advantage in eating the fruit. And he does this by means of half-truths. And this is still how it works today. For instance, it, the recent pressure on churches to change our teaching on marriage is based on twisting of the scriptures. And that creates a plausibility structure for sin making it seem sensible and advantageous to some. This also means that in many battles against temptation, big and little, there's a deeper battle going on. Do we really trust God's word? Do we really trust God's goodness? Trusting God's word and his goodness, his love is the antidote secondly there is the enemy within Paul refers to it in Galatians 5 as the flesh and he spells out what he calls the acts of the flesh sexual immorality, impurity debauchery, idolatry discord, jealousy and, and many more and these are right there inside us which is why sin can feel so natural even within Christian people who are being renewed inwardly, this flesh, this old software, if you like, 
is still there. Which is why uh, uh, Christian people still struggle, still struggle with doing what is right and godly. When the flesh meets the devil's lies, it acts as a receptor to those lies. For the flesh gladly welcomes sin that's made even more plausible. Paul talks about the antidote as being asking God's spirit for help in fighting this. In other words, to know what the fruit of the spirit to know what fruit the Spirit wants us to produce in our lives. Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, etc. There's a third source of temptation too. The world. This is the influence of those around us. Those who have swallowed the devil's lies and who give themselves over to the flesh. And of course we too are vulnerable to this. We, we don't want to be out of step. We want to fit in. And we can find the crowds of people around us intimidating. Paul gives the antidote. He reminds the people of Ephesus that the non-Christians of that city are futile, ignorant, darkened in their thinking. So by implication, why follow blind guides? Why follow blind, foolish guides? Instead, we've been fortunate enough to be given God's word, to be taught God's word, which we need to hold on to. See, in this dark world, we follow Jesus, the light of the world. We follow Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So we face temptation daily. We turn to God's word and trust his goodness. Daily, we seek to keep in step with his spirit choosing his way even though to others it looks long and difficult and foolish daily we follow Jesus and just like him we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly so this week can I encourage all of us to encourage one another? No shortcuts. No fast forwarding. Learning to trust God's way. The way of mercy, humility and faith. Learning to trust his perfect will in his perfect way let us pray father we know how confident we are to live life well and we know that we prefer the easy way
the convenient way, our way. So please remind us again today and each day that the way of the cross is the only way to life. So please help us to take up our cross daily, to stand against temptation and to know that we are loved by you. Amen.